Well, growing up as a kid, getting in the car, and especially a longer car ride, it wasn't fun. You see, back in the day, we didn't have child-centric cars. DVD players and entertainment centers and the ability to listen to what you want, when you want, to watch what you want, when you want, how you want. Kids, you've got it in all luxury today. Amen, right? Back in the day, dad chose what you were going to listen to. And in our car, it wasn't even FM radio. Some of the kids are saying right now, what's FM radio? We had to listen to AM, which was the ancient version of FM. And my dad was a lover of WGN radio, and it was boring. And when I mean boring, I mean mind-numbing boring. It would drive you crazy. You would begin to start asking the question, how much longer? They would talk about random things. But growing up, I remember riding in the car, a familiar voice would come on to WGN radio, and As I got acquainted with this voice, I began to listen to what he would begin to share. Now, I didn't know back in the day that Paul Harvey was a well-known fixture in the radio world. For me, it was five minutes where I began to be a bit, and I'll use the phrase, spellbound by the stories he would share. Paul Harvey, a pioneer in radio, for five minutes each day would share a story, a story about a well-known figure who you would not know that he was talking about him until the very end of the story. You would learn about some of the facts that nobody ever knew about. And it was this little bit of a mystery that would happen over those five minutes. And what he would say after he announced who he was talking about He would say, and now you know, help me out, the rest of the story. Really, it was more baritone, and now you know the rest of the story. Hebrews chapter 10 is the rest of the story. For now, nine full chapters, weeks upon weeks, we've endeavored in this book to learn under the heading, Jesus is the greatest of all time. We've learned he's greater than the patriarchs. We've learned he's greater than the prophets. We've learned he's greater than the Old Testament law and all that was involved with it. And now in Hebrews chapter 10, he is going to summarize why Jesus is the greatest and what's going to happen starting next week on for the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to be all about application. Because Jesus is the greatest of all time, I need to live a certain way. Because Jesus is the greatest of all time, I need to treat my spouse in a certain way. Because Jesus is the greatest of all time, I need to live by faith in a certain way. Because Jesus is the greatest of all time, I need to treat my Christian leaders in a certain way. And he's going to go on and on about all these applications in light of what Christ has done in his greatness. But in these first opening verses, 18 verses to be exact, he is going to go back and in one passage share a little more about who Jesus is, what he has done, but at the end of it he's going to say, but listen, this has bearing on you, and when I unveil the rest of the story, you're going to see how amazing Jesus really is. You see, 
I was always more fascinated, mesmerized, more adoring after I heard Paul Harvey talk about that famous person because I learned maybe some of the hardships, the difficulties, some of the hurdles they had to cross or jump over along the way that when I got the rest of the story, I was like, wow, I knew they were pretty special, but now I know they're way more special, way more amazing than I would have ever thought. The rest of the story causes us to be mesmerized, fascinated by, and more adoring. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to be fascinated by Christ. We want to be more adoring towards Christ because as we learn more about him and what he's done for us, as we get the rest of the story, we will begin, my friends, to worship him and to serve him and to honor him in a way that we've never done before. And that's what the writer wants to do. He wants to blow your socks off So that when it comes to serving him in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 of Hebrews, you're doing it out of delight. You're doing it out of excitement because it's no longer a drudgery or something you dread. But in light of what Christ has done for us, we'll do anything for him because he's the greatest of all time. So our text we pick up, Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 1, and what I want to do is I want to break up our passage. It's a long passage this morning, and it will be very easy for us to get lost in the passage unless we break it up in a chronological way, and we're going to do that this morning under headings. And so the first heading of what I want you to see is that God has done something great through Christ Jesus. And the first thing that we see is what was done in the past. Write that down. What God did in the past, and what he did in the past was what was called the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. And that's what governed them in the days of the Old Testament. So let's start there, and we're going to read about this old way in the first four verses of the book of Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let's stop there. The writer helps us to know what was going on in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Now, there are three characteristics that I want you to see. Now, some of them we have talked about in our times together. But the first one is, is he has brought up something he brought up only once before, and that is that the old covenant was a shadow of things that were going to come. That word shadow is the Greek word skia. And the word skia in the Greek, uh, it means a representation, an image, a shadow as is translated. Very similar to the idea of as I walk on the stage with light, I can see, you probably can't see it, but on the ground I have a shadow. And from some ways you can learn something about the shadow 
But it doesn't tell you much else. It tells me that your pastor's a big boy. Man, look at that. He's it's a, it's a big shadow, okay? But it doesn't tell you how beautiful I am. It doesn't tell you how athletic I am. It doesn't tell you what a great husband I am. The shadow doesn't do anything. Now, let's talk a little more. The word skia also is a representation. And so how does this help us? Because what we will do, what many Christians will do, is this. And we've got to be so very careful in our Christian theology that what we will do is we'll say, Old Covenant bad, New Covenant good. Old Covenant, God tried to fix things, but it didn't work, so then he sent a second thing. That's not. There was one plan, one covenant that God had, and that was to redeem a people to himself. Now, that covenant, as the book of Galatians said, came at just the right time in just the right way. And it came through the person and work of Jesus. So the old covenant, it had a job to do. Its job was to whet the appetite of those who were participating in it. It served as a picture. Let me help you with some pictures this morning to hopefully whet your appetite. Mmm. Mmm. Ooh. Ah. Now, just keep funneling through those guys, okay? Some of you are getting up and leaving, going to have lunch. Now, those are pictures, representations, and they tell us what? Number one, we're hungry, right? And in some ways, our appetite is growing because of what we've seen. But those pictures... They don't help us to smell what we're seeing. They don't allow us to taste what we're seeing. Now, our eyes tell us that's pretty great, right? By the way, Colonial Restaurant is closing here this week. Last time in Aurora to get a kitchen sink. That's what it reminded me of. But it tells you a couple things, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. But it points to something. The old covenant always, listen to me, always was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to something better, something greater, something more awesome than what was there. Now, here's the reason why we needed something better, more awesome, something greater, was because the law in and of itself could not make you holy. It could not deal with your sin. Notice in the text... It tells us that even though it was offered every year, it was unable, it could never, verse 1, it could never make perfect those who draw near. What a sad commentary. That as people drew near to God through the Old Testament covenant, it could never address holy what was happening in the life of the individual. And notice he drops the mic in verse four and he says the following, which must have caused the Hebrew audience of who the writer of Hebrews is writing to, to be aghast. Notice, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, they sacrificed hundreds of thousands of animals, shed gallons and gallons of blood, Only to be told now that it never took care of any sin. It didn't take it 
away. It couldn't make someone perfect. And the Jews knew that because God was holy, because God was just, the only way we could have a right relationship with God is if we ourselves were perfect, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. And so we've got a problem. And what we're learning is is that the law doesn't help. It doesn't address. Now, it points. It's used as a way to whet the appetite that there's something more, there's something greater that is to come. But it can't deal with sin like we need it to. How so? Notice, it could not deal with the conscience. The consciousness of sin. Notice that it says that though it was being continually offered, it would not address the issue of sin. Notice verse 2. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So during the time of the Mosaic law, worshipers would go, they would sacrifice the blood of goats and rams and bulls, And they would be told they are clean, externally, ceremonially clean. But as they're heading home, the remorse, the guilt of their sin, the same remorse and guilt of sin that you and I struggle with from time to time would be filled up in their hearts. It would cause them to be anxious. It would cause them to be worried. It would cause them to be really, am I taken care of? Have I been made clean? If I feel that this, this burden I have in my heart, this remorse, this guilt over my sin, and the Mosaic law, no amount of blood of animals would be able to take care of it. It could not address the heart. Now, this is all we've talked about in our time before. So this is what plagued the Old Testament. The Old Testament was plagued with individuals who knew God was perfect and righteous, and they were being told over and over again, especially in the days of Christ, that the law was the way to be made right before God. That's what the Pharisees were presenting, and that's what the, re- the readers of the book of Hebrews, this first generation or first century of listeners, were thinking. The law is what gets me right with God. But they had fallen in love with Jesus. And Jesus had said that he had come to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In Jesus, he said, I can make you clean. He said he was going to destroy the places like the temple, and that they were going to fall to the ground, and in three days he would rebuild it. All of this stuff's going on in their head, and they're asking the question, how does Jesus connect with the Old Testament law. The writer says, notice in verse one, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, that word there, good, agathos, in the Greek, it means that it is inherently and intrinsically good. So it speaks of its being good, but that word agathos also means that it serves as being profitable, beneficial. It is a blessing when it comes into contact with other people. And so we have this good that the law was pointing to and saying good times are coming, good things are coming, and it's not just that it will be good and we'll stand back and say, wow, that's a good thing, but that it will be a good thing that will have implications and applications to my life and it will change my life from being bad 
to good. It will change my hopelessness to hope. And so that is why the Israelite people always were looking to the day that Messiah was going to come because the prophet said that good thing was Messiah. And so from time to time, prophets would come, kings would come, and they'd say, this is the good thing to come. And they'd be told, no, no, it's not the good thing. And then as the New Testament rolls around, John the Baptist shows up, and people start to wonder, are you the good thing? And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not even good enough to carry the sandals of the one who's going to come. And then Jesus comes. And remember the conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist? John says, are you the one? Are you it? Surely you must be. I was in the water when a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so who is that agathos? Who is that good thing, that inherently and intrinsically good thing that was to be, to be used to benefit others? The answer is, my friends, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so we've got this old thing happening in the old covenant. The second thing is what God was doing in the present. Christ in the first century is what we're going to see next. So notice it says, amidst this old covenant, consequently, when Christ came into the world, this is what Jesus said. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said above, you have neither desired nor take pleasures in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, it says parenthetically. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. By doing this, Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for, a, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now let's stop there. What the writer does is he pivots from the Old Testament and he says it's pointing to something in the future. And we've been waiting for this. And so the writer says that waiting is over. Folks, you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And what he's telling these people in Hebrews is don't give up on him. Don't walk away from him. Don't drift away from him. Don't turn away in sin from him. Jesus is the one and only. And he begins to describe some of the things that Jesus had done. The first thing that Jesus did was he modeled for us what true religion was. Now remember, when Jesus comes to earth and makes his dwelling among us, the Pharisees are carrying the day. External religiosity is what it's all about. So you make sure you look as clean on the outside as you possibly can. Make sure you meet every requirement of the law so that nobody can say, look, you're dirty on the outside. But what Jesus says is, he models for us that true religion is an outward conformity, it's inward change. In fact, what Jesus says is, notice in the text, twice it says it in that passage there, 
that Jesus came, and what did he model? The life that says, I'm going to live life for the Father's will in heaven. Twice it says, I'm here to do the will, O God. Christian, understand that this is not what I'm preaching, is not external conformity. What I'm not preaching is external religion. What I'm experiencing, what I'm asking you to experience is life change. To to put it this way, and maybe you can write this down, what, what we're being told through the Psalm 40 passage is external obedience without internal obedience is just makeup over rebellion. We've miswritten that, so that's okay. External obedience without internal obedience is just rebellion with makeup on it. Think about that, parents, when your kid does what you ask them to, but their heart's not in it. Are you happy? Let's be, let's be honest. What about you with your spouse? They're just going through the motions. We celebrated Valentine's Day last week. And what if your spouse brought roses and, and said, here, I'm supposed to do this. So here it is. The calendar said, I'm supposed to say something nice about you, so here, something nice about you. External obedience without inward change is just rebellion before God with some makeup on it. And we need to recognize that's not what Jesus is bringing about. Jesus is telling us it is about us doing the will of God. God wants our hearts. God doesn't want the blood of goats and bulls. God doesn't want a bunch of external things that make us look holy before other people. He wants our hearts. So Christian, let me ask you, are you here today because someone told you to be here? Are you here today because it makes you look good with your family or or, or with other people Do you study the Bible for that reason? Do you pray for that reason? Do you serve for that reason? Do you give for that reason? Or does God have your heart that the reason why you live is to do the will of God? The reason why you give is to do the will of God in heaven. The reason why you pray and read the scriptures is to do the will of God in heaven. That's what Jesus modeled, that you can do that. And we should do that. But here's the problem. We didn't do that. And that's why Jesus comes and he, he pr- confronts the Pharisees. And he says, listen, Pharisees, you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And sadly, each and every one of us, when we go before God, we try to clean ourselves up. But as it was said, we are whitewashed tombs. We're clean on the outside and have dead men's bones on the inside. That's what Jesus said of us. So what does Jesus do? Notice he does what no priest could do before. He pays for our sin. Notice in the text it tells us, verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus come and he modeled 
what it means to do the will of our Father in heaven. And we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. Even if that means I've got to suffer, even if that means I've got to endure pain, and even death, I will do it because your will is the way I'm called to live. But he's come to a group of people who haven't done that. So what does Jesus do? As a priest, he didn't offer up a body of an animal. He offered up his own life. And he went to the cross. And he died a sinner's and criminal's death. Not because of crimes or sins that he had done but because of your crimes and sins and and mine. And he did so so that he might, through the shedding of his blood, take upon himself our sin. Now, he wouldn't do this again and again and again as the old covenant demanded, but he would do it once on the cross. So when he is dying on the cross, he announces, it is finished. Well, what's finished? The paying for sin, once for all. When Christ died on the cross, he had you and me on his mind. He knew our sin. And he was saying to the Father in the greatest exchange of human history, of cosmic history, on the cross, Tim's sins have been paid for. His perfection is finished. And just put your name where my name is at. And he did that. Not to do it over and over again, but he served in that moment, at that special time in the first century that we celebrate on Easter Sunday, not only the payment of Good Friday, but the power and victory over death that we could not have on our own. And so, what it says is he died. The writer then goes on and he says, but this priest, in offering his own life, found victory. Notice in the text, it says when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down. Now, I've said this before, but I'll repeat it. Priests never sat down. They were always working. They were always about doing the work in the presence of God. When Jesus got to the heavenly holy of holies, he sat down. Why? Because he could look his Father in heaven and say, it's finished. All the work is done. There's nothing left to be addressed. But this finished also meant there was no more concern to be had. In, in first century times, a king would sit when there was a time of peace. There was no more enemies. There was no more uh, war going on. Now you say, why does that matter? Because some of us are warring inside of us over our sin, over our guilt, anxious about the things we've done wrong. And God is saying, if, you're, if I'm sitting, then surely you can sit. If I'm resting in the finished work that I did on the cross, then child of mine, surely you can rest and be at peace that you no longer have to toil or strive for a perfection you will never get on your own. But 
if your desire and if your heart is to do my will, then by faith, which he's going to talk about in the next chapter, by faith, you can have eternal life and eternal rest. Where you don't have to strive, you don't have to work anymore to try to get my love, to try to get my perfection. But notice it goes even farther, and this is a thing of victory. The text tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God. Now we start looking forward. Verse 13, waiting from that time, what time? Waiting from the time that he died and gave us victory, from when he sat down, when Christ ascended to heaven, when the disciples saw him being carried off into the clouds, from that time until now, what is Jesus doing right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting. Waiting for what? For the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now again, a way of review. What does that mean? A footstool. His enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. In the first century, when a conquering king had conquered a land, he would grab the notables of the conquered place, the statesmen, the leaders, maybe even the king of that place. He would parade them through town in chains, and he would bring them to his throne room, and he would show all the world his supremacy over all that he has vanquished by doing one thing. He would have the individuals get on all fours before him, and he would put his feet up on them like an ottoman. Listen to me. There's a day coming, Christian, When Jesus, who has secured our victory on the cross of Calvary, you say, but wait a minute, the devil's still out. Seems like the world's winning, yes, but there is a day coming, and Jesus is waiting patiently, and he's allowing that waiting for many to come to repentance, but there's a day coming when Jesus will take his enemies, and they will be on all four before him, and he'll put up his feet, and he'll say, see, I'm the victor. I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. On that day, the writer, uh, Apostle Paul says in writing the book of Philippians that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, whether we were living the will of our Father in heaven on this earth or weren't, whether we were great or small, every heart and every voice will cry out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So what does that do for us? This victory. Now we know what it does for the people of the book of Hebrews. It helps them to understand that they need to move on from the growing obsolescence, if you will, making up a word probably, the obsoleteness of the old ways to now move and to grow and move towards maturity in Christ, in this new covenant made through his blood. But what about for us in the 21st century? What does that do for us? Well, it goes on. During this time of waiting, he says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time. Do you see the chronological words that are happening in this text? At one moment in time, he has perfected for all time. That's you and me. That's Chicago in the 21st century. Those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
After saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, he's again quoting Jeremiah 33, so he's quoted Psalm 40 already in the text. Now he's quoting Jeremiah 33. The covenant I'll make with them after those days, what days? After the death of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, a new covenant. Remember the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. He says, after those days... I'm going to put my law on their hearts, and I'm going to write it on their minds. And you know when that took place? That took place on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down upon those disciples, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled to do, as Jesus said, greater things than even he was able to do, that they would change the world for the cause of Christ. And then he gives two more phrases. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, And number two, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what the writer says is stop going back to the starting point. And in verse 19, he's going to say, therefore, probably one of the most consequential words in all of the book of Hebrews, therefore, in light of all that we know about Jesus, now we need to take off to maturity. Now we need to take off into service. Now we need to take off into giving and living in a way that honors Christ. But in order for that to do it, we need to understand that God, what God is doing to perfect his people, that's number three, what God is doing to perfect his people, and that's Christians in these last days. So we who are imperfect, who lived under the Mosaic law all those years trying to be made perfect, who never were, Christ came so that by faith we might be able to now Live for him and do the will of God. Now, in just a couple verses, the writer's going to say, now I want to tell you that it wasn't that salvation couldn't be found in the Old Testament, but it wasn't through the law. How was it done? By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Gideon. By faith, it goes through all of these individuals. By faith, this is what happened. How do we get close to God? How do we have our sins taken care of? By faith. Not by external religiosity. And so by faith, by saying with faith, I will do the will of my Father in heaven, Three things take place, and I'll close our time with these. Number one, God makes us perfect by faith. He takes that which is imperfect, and he makes it perfect through the cross of Calvary. And he does it, first of all, by saving us completely. Now, this is so very important because we think, okay, Jesus saves me from sins, but he saves me from those certain sins. And deep down inside, you and I know the sins that we do sin that nobody knows about. Those sins that maybe our spouse doesn't know about, or our parents know about, or our kids, or our pastor, and to be fair, or our congregation. And what I want you to know is the writer says, and he uses phraseology that says, whom the Son has set free, we just sang it, right? Is free indeed. 
I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. When we confess our sins, yes, even those dirty, rotten, ugly sins that no one but God knows about, God says because of the work on the cross, it has been dealt with. Your sins, which were crimson, the prophet says, are but white as snow. You know how white snow is? we got to have blinds down in our room because it's so blindingly white. That's how white God makes us, how clean, how blameless we are. And he does it completely. That's why when Christ was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is done. It is dealt with. Brother and sister, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins are no more. Now this is what he says. I'll remember them. No more. So he saves us completely. Notice, he sanctifies us continually. The Hebrews are sitting there going, wait a minute. If I'm positionally perfect, then what happened last week? That didn't seem very spiritually perfect. When that person cut me off, that hand gesture that came up, that wasn't a spiritually perfect hand gesture. When the kids didn't do what they were supposed to, spiritually perfect words didn't come out of my mouth. The things that I'm looking at on the internet, those aren't spiritually perfect things. So how in the world can I be spiritually, positionally perfect and be filled with sin? And the answer is the Holy Spirit's work. And the writer says, okay, the Holy Spirit in this new covenant is going to bear witness to us. How? By putting God's word into our hearts, into our minds, and convicting of us our sins, and showing us righteousness. And so this battle that's going on with you as a child of God is not a losing battle. Don't ever think the battle for holiness is a losing battle. God says, when I started a work in you, I, maybe not you, but I am faithful to see it to completion. And so what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's moving and he's interacting right now. Listen to me. As you're sitting in this room, as a child of God, you are being made more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, why would he tell us all this? Because he wants to strengthen us in confidence. And this is so important as we continue in our series. We need confidence. Why? Because we'll fall into the old way of things. We'll start falling into this idea that i got to start doing external things to be made holy. And so we start adding all of these external things. i got to do, i got to do, i got to do, instead of just resting in being a child of God. And so what the writer says is, his sins he will, your sins he will remember no more. Wait a minute, God is omniscient. How can he forget things? He doesn't forget them. He just doesn't hold us accountable for them anymore. He doesn't hold it against us. Now, we do that. Our spouses, they fail us, and we forgive them, and we don't hold it against them. We do that with our children. We do that with our bosses and in our, our neighbors. Well, we, do it imperfect, we do it imperfectly, but God does it perfectly. And so when God sees us in our sin, he doesn't hold our sin against us. Why? Because Jesus has perfectly taken care of that sin. And so that should give us confidence. 
And what he says is once forgiveness for sins has been done, there's no need for atoning. Some of us right now find ourselves trying to atone for our sins. But what God wants us to know, what God wants us to live in light of, is his forgiveness. This last week I was at a conference down in Texas and I was talking with a pastor and he right away from the get-go, you could tell he was pretty depressed. I said, what's going on? He says, I can't do anything right in my church. Whatever I do, someone's mad. I said, how long have you been there? He says, just for a couple of years. I said, wow, what a first couple of years for you with all that's going on in our world. And he says, well, how long, Tim, have you been a pastor? And I told him that I had grown up in the church and, and that I had been pastoring now for almost 18 years. And, and uh, what a blessing. Yes, I said, what a blessing it is to serve. And he said, wow, 18 years, it's a lot longer than most people pastor churches. How, how is it not falling apart for you? And this is what I said, and I'm, I'm not blowing smoke for you guys I said, because I have confidence that they love me. And so I don't have to perform. I just need to be myself. And when I make mistakes, this congregation loves me and I've made mistakes. If you're like, oh, I haven't seen you make mistakes. You haven't been here long enough. I've made mistakes. And I'm gonna make mistakes. And I have confidence of your love and the relationship we have. Can I tell you something? I don't stay up at night wondering where I stand with you. Can I tell you what it does? It frees me to serve you. It frees me to love you. It frees me to minister and to follow God and not have concern because you, you've told me, listen, we're with you and we love you. And yeah, that means sometimes we're going to speak hard truths into your life, Pastor Tim. But that's what God's called us to do. But I don't wonder about our relationship. I'm not walking on pins and needles. Now, you're doing that imperfectly. God tells us as believers, and I'll finish with this. God tells us as believers, you and I are his children. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter what we've thought, we are his children. And because we are his children, we no longer have to be asking the question, am I really in this family? Does he really love me? If you're asking that question, look to Jesus, who for the joy set before you endured the cross, scorning its shame for you and for me. He's going to talk about that in Hebrews chapter 12. If you're wondering, are you accepted, look to Jesus who says, I am yours and you are mine. That's why Paul says, because of the love of Christ and Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because of the love of Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, you and I are more than conquerors. 
And so this confidence that he wants us to have is not a, wow, I must have been great. Jesus picked me for his team. But wow, what a mighty God we have. What a loving God we have. And in light of that, I want to serve him. In light of that, I want to live for him. In light of that, I want to give to him. In light of that, I want to lift my voice and make sure everybody knows that I serve the one and true God of the universe. I love him because he first loved me. And when you live from that kind of vantage point, listen to me, it will revolutionize your Christian life. And that's what the writer wants us to get because he's going to talk about living and giving and serving and having marriages that honor God and following leaders as they follow God and living by faith and not by sight. But if we don't get that we do this out of the love and gratitude of all that God has done, then all that he's going to talk about in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 will cause us to be filled with dread And even the good things we do will be a drudgery instead of the great delight that God wants for us. You're a child of God. If you have believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then have confidence that you are free indeed. And from that place that you can live unburdened and full of confidence of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus.